Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. In the chapter thus far, we've discovered that it is not food, but sin that defiles the human heart. And now we learn that faith can make a person whole. Other than a brief trip to Egypt when Jesus was very, very young, this is the only time recorded in the scripture that Jesus visits a foreign country. This will mark the beginning of the tearing down of the wall between Jew and Gentile. This is what I've come to believe and call the open border gospel, the time when borders are going to break down and the gospel is going to be a universal invitation. For the world as a whole, when you would often look at the Jewish people, the people on the outside would often look at the Jewish people on the inside and they would consider themselves outsiders. Maybe you've been in a situation where you considered yourself either an outsider or an insider in business, in politics, in entertainment. We have come to this place where we look at the insider and the outsider. I think it's also true in the kingdom of God, of Jesus and faith. When I was very, very young in kindergarten, I distinctly remember this very, very vivid memory of watching the kids in elementary school go into the cafeteria and thinking to myself, how cool would it be to be older and go eat in the cafeteria? And of course, in elementary school, I ate in the cafeteria. It wasn't all that exciting. In elementary school, I walked to school and I remember seeing big yellow buses pick kids up and take them to high school. And I thought to myself, how cool would it be to be able to get on board that big yellow bus and go to high school? And then, of course, when I was in high school, it was such a drag 
having to ride the bus, watching my friends in high school whose parents were able to afford to give them a car. And I thought, how cool would it be if I got to drive myself to school? In college, I thought about how cool it would be to have a, a job. And now, over 40 years later, I'm thinking how cool it would be to eat in a cafeteria and have somebody else drive me. <laughs> I wasn't always a Christian. There was a time when I was on the outside looking in. I've always had thoughts and ideas and opinions about ultimate issues and before I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, before I surrendered my foolish and sinful heart to Jesus, I thought about what it might be like to be a Christian. And when I used to think about being a Christian, I would become overwhelmed by a sense of nausea and disgust. I didn't have a good view of Christians or Christianity. My opinion about Christ and Christianity was largely based not on the truth, but based on the popular culture and based on my imagination. I thought everyone was welcome to their own belief, no matter how strange, no matter how bizarre, no matter how disconnected from what I perceived to be reality. I had an honest opinion about Christ and Christianity, but it wasn't an informed opinion. Someone once said, I wonder why the fella with the least amount of information about a subject is often the most opinionated. Plato wrote thousands of years ago, quote, between knowledge of what really exists and ignorant of, ignorance of what does not exist lies the domain of public opinion. Plato said it's more obscure than knowledge, but clearer than ignorance, unquote. The woman of Canaan in this story is an outsider, and she's a triple loser. And you might think, what do you mean, Gino, she's a triple loser? She has a demon-possessed daughter. You don't get invited to a lot of parties when the closest people in your family are possessed. A demon-possessed daughter can crush friendships. She's a Canaanite, a Gentile, for the most part despised by the Jews. There's profound and wicked sin in her life. She is a Gentile. And third, she is a woman in that culture and society, often viewed as inferior, even by some groups, subhuman. But she's a mother in a desperate situation. She wants healing and help for her daughter. She's an outsider who desperately needs an insider's help. And I need to warn you about something. This woman has everything going against her. Maybe just like how you perceive yourself or your circumstances or the difficulties and the challenges that you're facing. 
But I want you to watch how Jesus will take what looks like silence and looks like rejection and looks like indifference and use it to build her faith and reward her faith. And so we begin by looking at faith awakened. Look at verse 21 again. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Why does Jesus take this journey? Why does he leave the Galilee and head north? I'm going to suggest to you, like most scholars, it is because of the bitter and determined opposition on the part of the religious leaders who have already made it clear that they are going to humiliate Jesus, they're going to make every effort to kill Jesus, and Tyre and Sidon have both a rich and repulsive roots. Tyre was a city of merchants and ships. People left ports and traveled the world. Both Tyre and Sidon were natural harbors, perfect for ships, perfect for sailors, and the Phoenicians were the first sailors that we know of to navigate the entire Mediterranean. They are literally the first people group that we know of who looked up into heaven and followed the stars and were able to go past the pillars of Hercules or what we would call the Straits of Gibraltar. They literally made their way all the way up to Britain where they encountered metal and mines. And then they went down Africa all the way to Southern Africa. They were an amazing people. In the time of David and Solomon, the king of Tyre helped build the Jewish temple. But the relationship between Tyre and Sidon and the Jews became ever more progressively strained. In 586, when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the Jewish temple, the people in Tyre and Sidon rose up with a single voice and said, Death to Jerusalem, death to Jerusalem, death to Jerusalem. I want you to think about that. Can you imagine a country shouting death when catastrophe strikes? Just like in our world, huh? Something horrible and terrible happens. What could be more nauseating? What could be more disgusting than when people are hurt and some people celebrate and rejoice? And look what it says. By the way, Tyre and Sidon are now located in the modern country of Lebanon. Tyre is about 12 miles north of the Jewish border, and Sidon is about 35 miles north of Tyre. In verse 22, it says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Mark calls her a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation in Mark chapter 7, verse 20. And her story again becomes a classic tale of how those who come to Jesus in faith can find some help. There's an awakening of faith. There's a development of faith. There's a testing of faith. There's a rewarding of faith. And the woman cries out for exactly what each and every one of us need. She calls Jesus. 
Lord and the son of David and were immediately sympathetic with her plight because mercy is the need of every human soul. We need God's favor. We need God's forgiveness. We need God's grace. We need God's undeserving grace. We've broken God's law. And most of us have neglected God's love. Mercy remains unobtainable and unavailable until we're willing to both acknowledge Jesus and see him for who he is. It makes perfect sense to me that there are people who want mercy and they want grace and they want the mercy of God and the grace of God, but they don't want the son of God and they don't want the gospel of God. She calls him Lord and the son of David. And for good reason, he is the son of David. He's a Jew. She's a Gentile. Can the Jewish Messiah provide help for a Gentile mother? But she still comes, hoping, desperate. When I thought about this passage, I said to myself, is she convinced? Does she really believe with all of her heart this Jesus can help her? And note for yourself, she describes her daughter as severely demon-possessed. We could ask the question, was the daughter really demon-possessed? I think it's safe to say that we could answer one of two ways, yes or no, or maybe. What do we know for certain? I think what we know for certain is that her mother thinks she's demon-possessed. And I got to tell you something, mothers are fairly generous and fairly gracious and fairly long-suffering. You don't typically go to that place right away unless there is a serious persistent problem. And look what it says, faith discouraged, beginning in verse 23. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away for she cries out after us. In all fairness to the disciples, one of two things is happening. They are in effect saying, get rid of her, make her stop. Is it possible that we could read this text and come to the conclusion that what the disciples really mean is help her and let's get on with it? One of two things is true. They are saying help her and let's get on with it or you know what? This person and her need is a lost cause and let's just move on. In our text, and you should note this if you're one of those people who underline your Bible or take notes, in our text we read four times, he answered. This is going to be very important because it provides a natural division for the text itself. Look in verse 23, but he answered her not. Verse 24, but he answered. Verse 26, but he answered. Verse 28, Jesus answered. It's all going to be very, very important in just a few moments. 
Because most of us are going to be at once surprised and puzzled by the response of Jesus. Because you might be thinking, why in the world would she do this? And why in the, or why in the world would Jesus not speak to her? There are four occasions in the New Testament where we find Jesus silent. In John chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, you remember the story that when a group of men came and accused a woman of adultery and demanded that Jesus judge her and make judgment and put her to death, you'll remember that Jesus stoops in the ground and he begins to write in the dirt with his finger. And according to John 8, it says, as though he did not hear. We might think of this as the silence of rebuke against sin and hypocrisy. Jesus is silent at that point, but not always for the reasons why we might imagine. There's Matthew 26, 63, where Jesus stands accused before the religious leaders and the high priest as a parade of false witnesses march in front of the high priest and the Sanhedrin making accusation in a kangaroo court offering conflicted and untrue accusations against him. In verse 63, we read the words in Matthew 27, and he, Jesus, kept silent. Jesus was silent before his accusers because they had lost the ability or the capacity to recognize truth, and to recognize righteousness. In Matthew 27, 39, Jesus is placed on Calvary's cross. Pilate places a placard just above his head. The accusation reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In Matthew 27, 39, we learn that the crowds and the criminals and the chief priests all began to shout at him, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I'm the son of God, unquote. All the derision, all the mocking, and the satanic invitation to leave the cross, to leave the place of forgiveness and hope, to leave the place where you can be cured. Those invitations were met with silence. It shouldn't come as a shock and a surprise to you that when you invite God and you invite Jesus to do something other than love you and care for you and believe that what he is doing is in your best interest, you can expect silence. 
And then there's here. He answered her not a word. Why does Jesus remain silent? Does he remain silent because he's apathetic or indifferent? Does he remain silent because he's a Jew and she's a Gentile? Is he silent because he really is prejudiced? Or is he silent in order to draw out her faith and grow her faith and mature her faith? Whatever it is that you're thinking right at this moment, whatever it is that you make of his silence, your conclusion probably reveals more about your heart than the invitation of the text. Some have interpreted Jesus' silence as prejudice or indifference. Someone once said that the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is silence. Sometimes silence can seem more painful than the strongest emotions of anger or disappointment or hate. Here, the silence of Jesus is neither indifference nor prejudice. It's love deep inside the desperate heart of this woman is a heart of faith and Jesus knows it and Jesus is going to draw that faith out in the most unexpected way. What happens, what happens when your request, what happens when your prayers are met with silence? Do you ever feel that God is playing some sort of bizarre game of hide and seek with you? Do you ever feel like Jesus isn't accepting your calls or, or returning your texts? Maybe you've thought, wow, Jesus, is this a bad time? Have I caught you at an awkward moment? Is the request too hard? Is what I'm asking too difficult? Too impossible? If it's true that the disciples are urging Jesus to get rid of her, the text says, send her away. You might get the feeling that both Jesus and the disciples are telling her to get lost. Outsider. Gentile. Woman, demon-possessed daughter, and you need to understand something. To the observant Jew, a person who was demon-possessed was obviously guilty of some terrible or wicked, perverse crime against God. People didn't just typically wake up one morning and they're demonically possessed. And it's often a situation where you might be tempted to draw the same conclusion as you're looking at another person's life and you're looking at another person's circumstance and you're looking at their family or you're looking at the fact that they're in jail or you're looking at whatever it is that you happen to be looking at and you come to the conclusion that they probably do deserve whatever it is that's happened to them. My daughter severely demon-possessed, she says in verse 7. The disciples say, good luck with that. 
Good luck with that. My daughter has cancer. Good luck with that. She has leukemia. Good luck with that. They're facing an impossible, difficult circumstance. Good luck with that. Demon-possessed people in that culture and society had often sunk to the lowest and the darkest forms of idolatry and blasphemy. Look what it says in verse 24. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's a Gentile. She's a woman. Strike one. Strike two. Earlier she's been met with silence. Now she, and rejection. Now she's met with what seems like rebuke. Does this mean that if you're not a Jew, you have to go to the end of the line? Does this mean that if you're not of the house of Israel, then there's no hope, there's no, you're just out of luck? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We just read in earlier in the, in the 15th chapter, Jesus has just declared food's clean. Jesus has just said that it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's, it's what comes out of your heart. Why does this woman have to remain on the outside? Why does she have to stay on the outside? She's a Gentile. She's considered by the Jewish people in the same category as a pagan, as a barbarian, for some a grotesque animal. Some thought that Gentiles were soulless creatures. But some of you know what it's like that other people's perceptions so completely, completely get it wrong. A good Orthodox Jew would not even walk on Gentile soil unless it was absolutely necessary. Does it come as a surprise that many Gentiles came to believe that God saw them the way the Jews saw them? And would it come to, as a surprise to you that maybe some of the people that you've drawn as outsiders eventually come to see themselves as you see them? Unwelcome. Unwanted. Is it possible that what we say and do has an effect on people for real. Would it surprise you that some people sometimes might be tempted to believe that God sees them the way that you see them? Unwanted. Outside. Unclean. What's happening in this woman's heart? What is she thinking and saying? Jesus has made this statement. Jesus, what are you saying? What are, what are you saying? I wasn't sent except for the lost sheep of, of Israel. Does, does this mean no? Or does this mean in this woman's mind, he didn't say no. He didn't, he didn't say you go away. He didn't say no. 
Do you remember that? I hope you didn't see it. Maybe you did. Did you ever see the movie Dumb and Dumber where this, where this Jim Carrey character is approaching this beautiful woman and he's asking her out for a date and he said to her, what are the chances of you going out with me? And she said, one in a million. And he goes, you mean there's hope? Most normal people would go, this is her way of saying, no hope. How can a person who hears the words, no hope, find hope? This woman is saying, you mean there's a chance? You mean he didn't say no? Emil Brunner writes, quote, faith believes Jesus is good even when reason isn't sure. In Mark's gospel, we read in chapter 7, verse 27. In Mark's gospel, it says, let the children be filled first. The word first is very important. Jesus isn't excluding the Gentile from God's love or even from God's salvation. He's in effect saying what he has always said. Salvation is to the Jew first and to the Gentile second. The instrument of salvation is the Jewish people. The Jewish people are going to bring forth the Messiah. The Jewish people are going to give birth, if you will, to this person in fulfillment of the prophecies to Jesus the Lord. This isn't a question of prejudice, but of priority. In God's plan, he's going to come to the Jew first and to the Gentile second. This is exactly what we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew, then for the Gentile. In Romans 1.16 it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Charles P. Curtis wrote in his book, a commonplace book, quote, there are only two ways to be unprejudiced and impartial. One is to be completely ignorant. The other is to be completely indifferent. Bias and prejudice are attitudes to be kept in hand, not attitudes to be avoided. You may be thinking, that can't be right. You, you may be thinking, you're wrong. I don't have a biased or prejudiced bone in my body. He writes, but I would challenge you to examine your heart. Examine your heart in light of those who are outside the circle that you've drawn. Are there people outside your social circle, political circle, cultural circle, religious circle, economic circle, intellectual circle, affection circle? It prompts a question. How do I see the outsider? How do you see the outsider? This woman is an outsider. She's a Gentile. She's a woman. 
a woman with a daughter who is in deep trouble, profound difficulty, and she needs help. And look what it says in verse 25, faith tested. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. I want you to remember what you've just read. Silence. Rejection. Rebuke. Her response? Worship. And a plea. Has that been your experience? When you're met with silence? Or seeming rejection? Or what seems to be rebuke? Her response is, I don't understand everything. But I still adore you. Is that your response? Sorrow will often bring about an abbreviated prayer. Short, sweet, and to the point. She has acknowledged that Jesus is the son of David. Now she acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God. Her persistence is amazing. What may have begun as a petition to a great man turns into a plea to the true and the living God because that's exactly what happens. Worship brings submission. You see, in our church, when we, when we sing these songs and we say the things that we say, it really isn't worship. It really isn't worship if what you're singing isn't going to bring you to a place of humility and obedience to the things that you're saying. And this woman has the supreme quality that we all have to embrace if we're going to get help. Desperation brings faith. We have to believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently and persistently seek him. This isn't an empty ritual. This is a passionate prayer from a desperate mom who loves her child. And the woman, she's willing to make the misery and torment of her child her misery and torment. It is love that brings her to a place where she's willing to ask a complete stranger for help. This is the kind of love that says, I'm an outsider and I'm going to risk silence and I'm going to risk rejection and I'm going to risk misunderstanding. This is love that accepts silence and then continues to make the, the appeal. It's love that makes her believe that Jesus' compassion and Jesus' generosity is going to eventually bring speech and with speech faith because the dogs aren't simply out in the streets now. The dogs have come into the house. The dog has made its way to the master's table. Jesus hasn't said no. Jesus hasn't said go away. And so she's going to hold on to him 
just like you. Just like you. Look what it says in verse 26. But he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Priority. Sheep first. Dog second. Remember, a dog is unclean by law and despised by Jews. I know this is a really hard verse when you love your dogs. Jesus, how could you say this? It's a searching test. It's a hard saying. By the way, in Mark's gospel, there's an interesting insight. In Mark chapter 7, verse 27, it, it reads, quote, But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, unquote. I'm hard-pressed to explain away the use of the term dog to describe the Gentiles. To call someone a dog is an inescapable insult. Dogs were scavengers and for the most part wild. The Romans domesticated dogs, but not the Jews. The text doesn't give us the tone of Jesus' voice. The text doesn't tell us about the twinkle in his eye. The text doesn't point to us a little smile, perhaps. This woman won't be dissuaded. She won't give up. Her prayer will incorporate the very words of Jesus. There's this vague feeling that something could happen, that something might happen. And in verse 27, look what it says. Then she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. The woman, again, uses the very words of Jesus to build and increase and fortify her own faith. And by the way, it is faith. This isn't simply a clever saying. This isn't just simply a wise response. This isn't just simply wishful thinking. The Life Application Bible Commentary adds this remarkable insight. It says, quote, Not all the Jews accepted Jesus, while some of the Gentiles chose to follow him. Why couldn't she have some of the crumbs that the Jews didn't want? She adroitly pointed out that even the dogs with, not after the children, Eat the crumbs that the Jews didn't want. She didn't ask for an entire meal. She was perfectly willing to take second place behind the Jew. All she wanted right then and there was a few crumbs. Forget that. One crumb. One crumb in particular. One miracle of healing for her daughter, unquote. The commentator rightly points out that many Jews would miss out on God's spiritual healing because they rejected Jesus and many Gentiles would experience it because they were willing to see what the others were not willing to see. And some of you have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who have been willing to see what you refuse to see, what you can't see. 
Then Jesus answered her, and look what it says. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus calls her faith great. By the way, there's only one other time in the entire New Testament where Jesus ever says that about anybody else. It's to a Roman centurion pleading the case of his sick servant. He's too ashamed to put the Jewish rabbi in the uncomfortable and socially unacceptable position of coming into his house. And so he says, simply say the word and my servant will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not to be confused with wishful thinking or presumption or, or optimism or determination or superstition or imagination. Faith is quite simply believing that Jesus can do what Jesus says he can do. Faith isn't simply the absence of doubt or the absence of fear. The woman was consumed by a desperate desire to see her daughter delivered and healed. And the woman's humility and persistence and love and faith is going to pay off in the most remarkable way. She knows she's an outsider, but she refuses to remain an outsider. She wants to be on the inside. And maybe some of you have spent much of your life looking at Christianity from the outside. You've looked into the Bible and you've looked into your mother and father's life, your brother and sister's life, your husband or wife's life, your children's life. And you wondered what it would be like to be on the inside. The power of Jesus is great. The power of Jesus is powerful. And you'll note, it didn't require the presence of the daughter or even the presence of Jesus. It wasn't speech or proximity that made her well. The moment that Jesus said, let it be to you as you desire. What is it that you want? Really? What is it that you want from Jesus? What is it that you desire? What is it that will fill the void? What is it that will bring the light? What is it that will provide the joy? She doesn't name and claim success or prosperity. She simply wants her daughter healed from the terrible oppression. By the way, Mark's gospel gives us the conclusion to the story. 
if you want to know what it is. Wouldn't you like to know how it all ends? Mark chapter 7, verse 30, quote, And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone and her daughter lying on the bed. Frederick Dale Bruner writes, quote, Faith is, to use the vernacular, hanging in there. It's believing that Jesus will deliver. And great faith is faith that overcomes the biggest discouragement of all. The discouragement that comes from Jesus' word. When Jesus seems against us, who can be able to help us? But this woman doesn't believe simply his word is against her. Even though a less sensitive hearer could have believed that if he or she had listened only to the words and not the speaker of the words, faith is listening to Jesus' words as Jesus. You must never ever lose sight that Jesus loves you. He's committed to doing not what's worst for you, but what's best for you. Bruner is saying what we all have to believe. Whatever else God's word tells us, it can't lead us to reject the words of Jesus. God's word has to lead us to God. Or to leave us outsiders forever. And this woman won't remain outside. She won't give up. Someone once said to me, I think it was my grandma, if you're ever tempted to give up, just think of Brahms' lullaby, who took seven long years to compose his famous lullaby. Do you know why it took Brahms seven years to compose the lullaby? He kept falling asleep at the piano. Her faith is persistent. It's confident. She knew Jesus could really help. And that's what faith can be for you. If you come to the conclusion that Jesus can really, he can really help me. Faith isn't a feeling that we conjure in our heart. It is a total response to what God has said to us in Christ. So let me ask you a question. Are you on the outside? Or are you on the inside? Have you exhausted your resources? Is there still a few stones of pride and doubt and unbelief that's left unvisited? Has silence and severity closed the door of faith to your heart? Or are you willing to open your heart in a stubborn insistence that if Jesus isn't the answer, there are no answers? W.H. Griffith Thomas says, quote, Fellowship with the Lord himself can indeed unlock the secret of his words, unquote. If you really, really, really want to know what the Bible says and what the Bible means, it's going to require Jesus in your heart. You may have had a bad experience with church. 
You may have had a bad experience with church folk. But if you're looking for Jesus, don't let silence stop you. Don't let other people's rejection stop you. Don't let opinion stop you. Everyone will make place themselves in this story. You're someone in this story. You're the demon-possessed daughter. Or you're the desperate mother. Or you are the disappointing disciples. <laughs> but whoever you happen to be, you're in the story. Make no mistake about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, I pray for that person who wonders if you're really there, who wonders if you really care. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to them. Lord, I pray that whatever it is that they desire that's consistent with your word and consistent with your will and consistent with your plan, that you would search their heart and you would remind them that you're drawing out their faith so that they can love you and trust you. Lord, I pray that for the person who's empty, that they would not leave except that they are filled for the person who finds themselves in a dark place, Lord, I pray that they would be flooded with light. And for the person who finds himself or herself in a guilty place, that they could stand up from their chair, forgiven, free, filled, confident, with their prayer answered. Lord, for the person who prays that simple prayer, I know what I want. I want Jesus. I want him in my life. I want to be free from guilt and forgiven of sin and given a promise that my life matters and I get to go somewhere when I die. Lord, I pray that you would answer that prayer. I pray that they would just simply pray this simple prayer, Heavenly Father, you know my heart and you know my life and you know what it is that I need. You know what I've said and you know what I've done. Lord, I want to know you. I want to experience forgiveness, and I want to experience hope. And I want to be able to not only read the Bible and understand the Bible, but begin to see you for who you really are, a God who loves me and cares about me and is committed to me. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, there are men and women who are available to talk with you and pray with you. If there's another thing that's happening in your life, if we can be of help, we would certainly like to try. Let's stand. Amen.